today. If you have your Bible, please open it to Colossians chapter 3. Um, The text that Wes read is what we will be focusing on today. And I do want to thank you all for joining us today here on Facebook Live for our uh, worship gathering. Um, Today we're going to I'm going to finish up the Imago Day sermon series with a hard and difficult and uncomfortable passage. It's Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 through, verse, through chapter 4, verse 1. Colossians 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1. The title of this final sermon is Jesus Redeems Relationships, Part 4. Jesus Redeems Relationships, Part 4. The main point, my main point is that Jesus redeems social relationships so his people can experience healthy connections and community. Jesus redeems social relationships so his people can experience healthy connections and community. Please pray with him for me. Holy Spirit, as I pray each week, I pray once again today um, that you will glorify Jesus in every word that comes from Uh, my mouth today, that he will be exalted, that he will be glorified, and that the words that come forth, they will be an encouragement to to all of our hearts. Um, It may bring conviction. It may bring um, challenge and and a rebuke if we need to be rebuked, that each of us will hear what we need to hear and receive what we need to receive. For this is God's word, not the word of man. Not the word of the village church, not the word of the Presbyterian church in America, but it's God's word. Holy, true, without error. So Holy Spirit, you are the counselor. You are the one who leads us into all truth. No one becomes a believer apart from you. And no one grows in their faith apart from you. So we are utterly dependent upon your grace. We are utterly dependent upon your mercy and your strength and your power. Minister to our minds. Minister to our emotions. Holy Spirit, please move. Please work. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. Have you ever been taken out of context? Have you ever taken someone out of context? Have you ever uttered the words, hey, I was taken out of context. That's not what I meant. It happens. Sometimes unintentionally and sometimes intentionally. And it's easy to do. But but as one public speaker and columnist said, said, when we take something out of context to prove a point, the real victim is truth. And to be more specific, we cannot succeed over the long time, over the long haul, if we don't tell the truth. 
in reality, a half-truth is still a lie. When we take something out of context to prove a point, the real victim is truth. Context is always important. It can't be ignored. It can't be overlooked. And especially when it comes to God's word, especially when it comes to interpreting scripture. And that's the amen statement. God's word can be taken out of context. It has happened. It is currently happening. And it will continue to happen. And the passage before us this morning can be the next victim. Colossians 3, verse 22 through 4, chapter 1. It's a difficult passage. It's hard and it's uncomfortable. And it can easily be taken out of context. The passage can, can be used to, 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 to feed into false notions of, of social superiority and inferiority. It can be used to justify an evil system. It can be used to say that the system is being condoned. A person can even read into this passage ideals and theologies that aren't really there. And the Apostle Paul, the author of Colossians, he wants to keep us from making this mistake. And if if Paul was here and if he was the one standing up here uh, giving you this sermon, this is what he would tell y'all. Please don't take me out of context. Don't don't put words in my mouth. Don't take my words out of context. Don't take Colossians 3, 22 through chapter 4, verse 1 out of context. You've got to deal with the passage in its context. It's historical, it's historical context and it's biblical context. There are two. Both are important. Let's look at the historical context because it's important. See, the historical context is an elephant in the room within the Colossians church. Something lies in the background of Paul's words. There's a backstory. And the Colossians, they see the elephant. Heck, I mean, they know what lies in the background. These aren't just words on a page for them. It's their reality. It's, the, it's, the, it's real life for them. They're living it. We just get the luxury of reading it. But they're living it. And we do a great disservice to them and to Scripture if we simply ignore and overlook the historical context of what Paul says here. If we move too quickly to, to work ethics, the depth from the patch, we do a disservice. We have to address the historical context. We have to acknowledge the elephant in the room. And Paul does just that. So what's the elephant in the room? What's the historical context? Is Rome's institution of slavery. That's the answer. That's the context. And if we're all honest, that makes us very uncomfortable. We get into our feelings. Particularly these two trigger words used in the passage, slaves and masters. You can call them bond servants, but they're slaves. It's uncomfortable. I'm uncomfortable because my mind automatically goes to what my ancestors went to, went through in this country. But a transatlantic slave system isn't the historical context here. And you can't read that into the passage. So bring your minds back. 
the historical context is Rome's institution of slavery. It's the elephant in the room. It's what lies in the background. And if it didn't exist in Rome, then Paul wouldn't be addressed in slaves and masters in these verses. If there wasn't Christian slaves and masters in this church, he wouldn't be addressing them. Come on now. If there wasn't Christians in these two social positions, why would he even say that in this in this book? He wouldn't. The, his, the historical context matters. It can't be ignored. It can't be overlooked. It has to be addressed. So I did some research and reading into Rome's institution of slavery because when I listen to pastors today, they they they, they kind of romanticize it like it was different than what my ancestors went through. So I read articles, commentaries, and scholars from the time period. Take Andrew Mason Burks, for example. He wrote his dissertation on Roman slavery. And from the research he gathered, he wrote, in, 2020, in 225 B.C., there were an estimated 600,000 slaves in Rome, Rome, Rome and Italy. But only 194 years later, that number grew to approximately 2 million. This includes a growth of from 15% to 35% of the total population. Some scholars suggest the number was as high as 3 million. Others say one in five persons in the whole Roman Empire were slaves. High shocking numbers, right? How did it increase? Rome society has had three primary sources for securing slaves. Captives from war, kidnapping, and slave families. Those were the three sources. Enslaved persons were even used in, in every area of Roman society, agriculture, domestic, state, entertainment, industry, education, medical, religion, and military. They served in all of these areas, and yet they still had no legal right to slaves. Some faced debasement and Cruelty, others experienced some level of freedom granted to them by their masters. Some were even paid away. Some could even own property. That's the historical context. Many of these believers in this church are living in and living with. And let's, and let's make one thing clear. Paul is not talking to people working at Chick-fil-A who gets every Sunday off. He's not talking to them. He's not. He's talking to Christians who are actually enslaved and Christians who actually own slaves. And no matter how we theologically spin it, Paul's words here, to make it palatable to us, slavery is still slavery at the end of the day, no matter the form. Would you trade places with a slave? Even if the person could own land and get paid? You ain't that holy. You won't. Plautus was a Roman playwright. He lived from 254 B.C. to 184 B.C. And in one of his, his plays, a, a slave character said, it's no fun being a slave. And it's not just the work. It's knowing that you are a slave and that nothing can change it. You, what, what do you think that, that, that character is communicating? It ain't just a work. It's knowing that you are a slave and there's nothing that you can do to change it. Hopelessness. 
hopelessness. Plato, a 5th century B.C. Greek philosopher, said, Nature herself imitates that it's not just for the better to have more than the worse, the more powerful than the weaker. In many ways, she shows, listen to this, she shows among men as well as animals, and indeed among whole cities and races, that justice consists in the superior ruling over and having more than the inferior. You, you see what his definition of justice is, right? The superior having more than the inferior. Aristotle, a 4th century B.C. Greek scholar, says slaves are living tools. Living tools. He also says, for that some should rule and others to be ruled is not only necessary, but expedient. From the hour of their birth, some are marked to be ruled and others for rule. Does that sound like Roman slave system is romanticized? Is romantic? Do you see their view? Gaius, a Roman law expert, wrote, It therefore appears that Roman law places in the same category with slaves animals, which weren't included under the heads of cattle and are kept in herd. So don't come to me with Roman slavery was different. They still dehumanized people. These slaves were seen less than human. They were inferior. They were not persons. They were not people. They were property, things, and objects to be ruled over. They're a commodity, a living tool, who are on the same level as your dog. Your cows, your goats, your chickens, your pigs, and your hogs. Slaves are seen as inferior to free people, and they are not equal to free people socially or in personhood. And the and Roman slaves, see, they were not at the bottom of the social barrel. They were underneath it. The barrel was on top of them. The lowest of the low. And you got to think. What would that do to a person's a view, a person's view of themselves? Slavery impacts one's self, view of self. It robs people of their God-given dignity and value and self-worth. It definitely impacts social relationships. Andrew Burks again wrote, When one looks down upon a person, he or she looks down upon the position that person holds. No proper freeman will want a job that he viewed only fit for a slave. And nobody in their right mind would trade places with a slave. You won't, I won't. I don't care how much you say you love Jesus, you ain't trading that places with them. Just own it. And that's real talk. It's no fun being a slave. It's a degrading system. And, and why doesn't Paul challenge it? Why does he appear to be silent? Is he upholding it? Is he, is he condoning the Roman institutional slavery? Those are legitimate questions. But again, we have to be careful. Don't take Paul out of context. He does challenge the system. He's not silent. 
He's not upholding it or condoning it. I want us to consider for a moment Paul's personal historical context for a moment. Because his historical context matters as well. Paul, where does Paul write this letter from? Is he in an ivory tower? Is he in a comfortable place? Is he on a mountaintop? He writes this letter from a hard place, a broken place, a suffering place. The brother's in chains. He's incarcerated. He's locked up. He's on house arrest in Rome because some of his fellow Jews brought false charges against him before a Roman court. In Acts 28, he tells some of his friends, he says, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered up as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for me to face the death penalty. But because the Jews objected, I, was comp- I had to compel to Caesar. Though I had no charge to bring against my nation, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing these chains. Paul knows what it's like not to be free. Not from reading a book, but from experience. Personal experience. He's living it. It's part of his historical context. For the same government that instituted slavery is the same one that has him on house arrest. So you think it's wise for him to lead, lead a slave revolt on house arrest? You think that's wise for him? He's being wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove here. Like I said, context matter can't be ignored. Paul's words in Colossians 3, 22 through 4, 1 have a historical context and a biblical one. Today's passage is in the context of the whole letter. You can't just pick this out. And make it mean what you want it to mean. You can't separate these verses from the rest of Scripture and the rest of the letter. The purpose of the letter is not to directly attack Rome and its institution of slavery. That's not the purpose of the letter. That's not why he writes the letter. His letter is a response to what has been reported to him about what is happening within the church. He writes this letter to encourage these believers in their faith. He writes to remind them about the false teachers that's living among them. He writes them to explain the implications of their union with the Redeemer, Jesus. Union with Christ is the immediate context of this passage. And remember, union with Christ changes the way God relates to us. It changes the way believers relate to other people. It changes the way you relate to yourself as a believer. It changes the way you relate to your family. And it changes the way you relate to people in social relationships. Do you believe it? It changes the way you function in social relationships and in social positions. It changes the way believers function when they're in the position of authority, and it changes the way believers function when you are under authority. Do you believe it? Union with Christ completely shatters our view of superiority and inferiority. It changes all that. But do you believe it? Union with Christ, it can change and redeem broken social relationships among believers. And for the believers in this text, 
is enslaved Christians and Christian masters. Paul's words here are an indirect attack against the system. They're indirect because he addresses the two positions that make up the institution, the enslaved and the slaver. And remember, if that didn't exist in Rome, he would not be saying this. If, they, if these groups were not in the church, he would not be addressing them. Just because something makes you uncomfortable doesn't mean you can, you, can, you can skip over it in Scripture. You've got to deal with what makes you comfortable and what makes you uncomfortable. Deal with it. And so what he does and says to them takes a huge bite out of the elephant. Remember how slaves are viewed in Rome and Roman society. Remember how the Roman law classifies them. Their property, objects, living tools, not people, not persons, definitely not equal to free people. The fact that Paul addresses enslaved Christians as persons and not property speaks against the system. Right? He speaks against the system. I hope you see this. He addresses them as human beings, socially, emotionally, intellectually, physically, and spiritually. Cicero, in one of his letters to his friends, says, Even slaves have always had liberty to feel hope or fear or joy or sorrow or their own impulse, not someone else's. Why is that the case? Because they're image bearers. Paul acknowledges the humanity of these enslaved Christians in this church. They're human beings with dignity, value, and self-worth. Human beings who are created in the image of God. And Paul is not just talking to household slaves here. He's talking to every enslaved Christian within this church. These enslaved Christians are in union with Christ, just like all the other Christians in the church. And everything Paul writes in this letter applies to both the enslaved Christian and the Christian master. Both are spiritually died with Christ. Both have been spiritually resurrected. Both have eternal security. Both have a future uh, transformation waiting for them with Christ. And in him, both have, are adopted beloved sons and daughters. In him, they're now family. In him, both have forgiveness. In him, both have peace and hope and redemption. Both have a new self in Christ that transcends social positions. Both have a new identity in Christ that transcends social status. But do you believe it? Remember, both groups are part of God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Both groups are believers. Both groups are in union with Christ. And both groups are being dressed in the clothing of the new self by the Holy Spirit. But do we believe that? Make sure I'm not having lost my spot. I did. Here we go. Paul writes in verse 11, here, the new self in Christ, there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. In the new self in Christ, there is no discrimination. There is no haves and have-nots. There is no favoritism. There is no us versus them. No superiority. No inferiority. No caste system. 
Every believer in the world is equally in union with Jesus. It doesn't matter your age, race, gender, culture, nationality, social class, marital status, or parental status. We are equally in union with him. All the enslaved Christians in this church aren't less than free people. They aren't less human than the Christian masters. These Christian masters aren't greater than the enslaved Christians and non-Christians. These social positions don't make them superior or inferior. Okay? Christians aren't who they are because of the social position they hold within Rome. Union with Christ makes them who they are. Not social status, not social class, and not social position. And nor does a sinful institution like slavery. All of their identities in Christ alone, value, dignity, self-worth, security, security, and significance. Listen, saints and guests. The Christians in these two social positions are part of God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And Paul wants both groups to put to death what is earthly in them. Don't forget about chapter 3. Don't forget about all that stuff he wrote. It applies in these relationships. Put to death what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and covetedness. He calls both groups to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, and lying to one another. He wants both groups to stop functioning in these social relationships in the old self and Adam. The old self and Adam. Social relationships can't be redeemed while functioning in the old self. The old self clothes have to be removed. Why do you think slavery was allowed to exist in this country? Because the church was functioning in the old self, not the new. That's why. And that's real talk. They can dress it up, spin it up, flip it up all they want to. They were dressed in the old clothes. That's why it was allowed to exist. The enslaved Christians and Christian masters in this particular church, they desperately need the Holy Spirit to remove their old self-clothes. And they need the Holy Spirit to redress them in the clothing of their new self in Jesus. And here's the, here's the tricky thing about these clothes. Like, you can have the new clothes on in one area, but wear the old clothes in another one. Please know that about yourself. You don't always wear the new clothes in everything you do. Sometimes you function in the old self, and sometimes you function in the new self, depending upon what's going on in your life. Know that about yourself. These new clothes are the new self. They aren't just for family relationships and church relationships. They're also for social relationships. The Spirit has to dress both groups in compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. The Spirit has to do that. And their new self in Christ should impact, should impact what happens in these social relationships and positions. It should impact the way, one, one, how they relate to one another within Roman society. You see, the enslaved Christians and, and Christian masters, they aren't just equal in value and self-worth and dignity inside the church. 
That's the amen statement. They aren't just equal when they get together for small group. They aren't just equal when they get together and worship. That equality extends outside the walls of the church in Roman society. They aren't just family when they get together. If, I'm not, if I can't be your family out there, then why are we here? We can't be family here. So, so, so Paul is saying, y'all are family. You can't, don't walk past me in the, in the store and like you don't know me. Because if you do that, I'm going to call you out. Hey. So what Paul is saying is, that familyness is here and out there in society. They aren't just brothers and sisters some of the time in Christ. They're brothers and sisters in Christ all the time. Inside and outside the church, even on Facebook, even on Twitter, even on Instagram, your brothers and sisters, so be mindful of what you post. And that's for everybody, white, black, Asian, whatever color you are. So these Christians, they, have to, they live as brothers and sisters in Roman society, and they live that way even in the reality of Rome institution of slavery. Remember, both groups are part of God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Both are believers. Both are in union with Christ. Both are being dressed in the clothing of the new self. By the Holy Spirit. You can't dress. They can't dress themselves in this. The Spirit has to do it. They have to pray for the Spirit to do it. He uses these clothes to redeem social relationships. He uses union with Christ to change how how both groups function in their social positions. Put on compassion. Put on kindness. Put on humility. Put on meekness. Put on patience. Put on forbearance. Put on forgiveness. Put on love. The enslaved Christians are to function and approach their work differently while dressed in the clothes of the new self. Paul, I don't understand this. I don't know why he doesn't do this. So don't have to email me about it. Paul doesn't instruct them to rebel against their work, to reject their resistance. Remember, that's not the purpose of the letter. The clothing of the new self in Christ will help them see beyond their social position with hope. To see beyond it. Because in this life, certain things will not get fixed until Christ returns. I hate that. I hate that I have to say it. Certain things won't get fixed but you can still have hope in the midst of the brokenness. The clothes will help them see beyond the social label that Roman society has placed on them. They they, they will help them not to fall into hopelessness. The clothing of the new self will help them approach their work differently with the fear of the Lord in their heart, with the attitude that they're serving the Lord, not man. Paul tells them this. Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Does Paul, is Paul telling them to obey even when they're asking them to do something that's evil and sinful? Because does everything mean everything in the Greek? Y'all can, act, y'all can speak and talk with me. No, because if that, if that was the case, he would be contradicting everything he said back in chapter 3, verses 4, 5 through 8. Put to death what is earthly in you. He instructs them to obey whatever isn't sinful. 
not not by way of our service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart and fearing the Lord. He knows the difficulty they would face to live this way, even while dressed in a new self. This is not pie in the sky type of stuff. He knows it's hard. That's why he calls them to approach it with the, where they approach their work in the Lord four times. He says, fear the Lord, work for the Lord, know the Lord, serve the Lord. Look at verses 23 and 24. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord, not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Jesus. And in verse 5, he gives them a word of hope. As it relates to the as it relates to the earthly masters. And this word that he gives them in verse 25 is not about them. He's talking about their masters. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done. There is no partiality. That's a word of hope for them. An indictment upon the slave masters. Now, what about these so-called Christian masters in this local church? What Paul doesn't want them to function in the old self either, in the old Adam. He wants the Holy Spirit to undress them, remove the old self clothes, and redress them in the clothing of the new self. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. Their union with Jesus should change the way they function in their social position and their social relationships. It should change the way they treat and relate to their slaves. It should change the, how they view this Roman system. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Masters, treat your bondservants. Masters, treat your bondservants. The force of the Greek verb that's translated treat, um, treat is stronger than this English translation. The verb is in the middle voice which places the emphasis on the action of the subject. Who's the subject here? Masters. So the beginning of verse 1 can read, Masters, you yourselves. These masters are to take up a particular action when dressed in the new clothes and, and living out their union with Christ. This action is more than how they treat their slaves. The Greek verb means to cause something to happen to someone to bring something about, to call someone to experience something, to grant someone something. Do y'all see it yet? Look at verse 1 again. Masters, you yourselves grant to your bondservants what is just and fair. It's not treat. It's grant to them. He's saying use your resources. Use your power. Use your authority to render to them justice and equity. Now, here's the questions. Is this justice and fairness according to Rome? Is this justice and fairness according to them? Or is it justice and fairness according to Yahweh Elohim? Because there is a difference. Which is it? There is a difference. I hope you know that. It's justice and fairness according to Yahweh Elohim. Masters, you yourselves grant to your bondservants what is just and fair, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. These Christian masters 
have a master in heaven who does not see them or treat them like slaves. How does he treat them? Beloved. Beloved. And so if they are the beloved in the eyes of their master, what should that mean in their relationships with other people? Beloved. Render to your slaves what is just and fair, knowing that y'all have masters in heaven, have a master in heaven. And they won't do this if they're functioning in the old self in Adam. They would not do it. They can't live this way while dressed in the, in the clothing of the new self. Sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, covetedness, anger, wrath, malice, slander, dirty talk, and lying to one another. The Holy Spirit has to come in and change their wardrobe, people. Has to change the whole wardrobe and redress them in these new clothing of the self, of the new self. Union with Christ, the Redeemer, is what allows that would allow these Christian masters to function differently and function differently in their social position. And when the when when the Spirit begins to work in them, guess what's going to happen? They're going to change. First. They would, see their, they would see their slaves differently. They would see them as persons, not property. People, not living tools. Image bearers, not commodities. These are all amen statements. Remember what Paul told them back in Colossians chapter 3, verse 11. Here, there is no Greek or Jew, or circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is all and in all. These Christian masters would see their bondservants as equal to them and value self-worth and dignity. Because Rome says they're not equal. Rome says you're better than them. Rome says they're, your, they're cattle. But the God's word says they are your brother and sister. You're equal. If you look into the world to help you love people better, they ain't ever going to happen. If you're looking to uh, um, human law to help you love people better, they ain't never going to happen. If you're looking to politics to help you love people better, they ain't never going to happen. If union, if your union with Christ is not enough, then there's nothing else I got for you. It is not. If they're in the old new self, if they're in dressed in these new clothes, they will begin, they will not, they will no longer see themselves as superior they would no longer see their slaves as inferior. There would be equality. These masters will work to make sure that slaves get what they need to enjoy a full, flourishing life. That would happen. Second, these Christian masters will use their power and authority and resources differently as they relate to their bond servants. They will render justice to them, grant to them what is just. And that's according to God's standard. It's God's justice, not Rome justice. God's justice. And that justice means doing right by someone. Doing right by someone. Doing what is righteous and just. And thirdly, they will grant fairness to their slaves according to God's justice, according to God's standard. And justice, fairness means equity. And that means being even-handed, impartial. It's, it's assuring 
that people have what they need. Now, what do y'all think is going to happen to these Christian masters when, when, when they put equity and justice and equality together and they live them out in their social relationship with their slaves? What's going to happen? Come on. It's on the tip of your tongue. What's going to happen? They're going to work to make sure they get free and to make sure they get what they need to flourish. Do I need to get the sign up? Because, again, who has the power in this, in this social relationship? Who has all the power? The master does. So if you're going to change the system, who you got to change? The master. So for these men or women, if they are putting equality and justice and equity together and living that out in these relationships, they will eventually labor to provide a way for their slaves to get freedom and to have what they need to live a flourishing life. Masters, you yourselves grant to your bondservants equality, justice, and equity. It's in the text. I ain't even got to go read anything about critical race theory to get it. It's in the Bible. You just don't see it the way I do. Because you're listening to the wrong preachers. Now, what does this mean for our modern context? Union with Christ changes the way believers relate to other people in social relationships. You are in social relationships with people. Every day you are. Union with Christ speaks to that. It changes the way you function in your social position. You have a social position in society, do you not? How you function in it. You cannot separate your Christianity from your social position. You cannot be separating the sacred from the sacred. Who you are as a Christian impacts the way you function in those social positions. It changes the way believers function when they're in a position of being under authority. You're under authority. In this life, how are you functioning there? It changes the way believers function when they're in a position of authority. Some Christians are in positions of authority in this society. How do you function in authority? Old old self or new self? New clothes or old clothes? Remember, you you can have them on at church. But when you get to work on Monday, you're putting on that old raggedy outfit. Come on, Adam, let's go. Give me, come on, sweatsuit. Let's go. How are you functioning? Union with Christ, it changes the, the way you see society's notion of who's superior and who's not. It changes it. Your identity isn't in your social status, position, and class in America. Do you realize that? It's not. Your identity isn't in being working class. That's not your identity. Your identity is not middle class. Your identity is not working poor. Not being upper middle class or middle class. Your identity is not your economic status or your social status. These are amen statements now. Come on. It's not in the degrees that you have or the lack of degrees. It's not in the title in front of your name. Your identity isn't in being a blue-collar worker or a white-collar worker. It's not even being a minimum wage worker. Your identity is not your job, your career, or your vocation. It's not in someone else. It's not in owning your business. It's not in working for someone else. It's in Christ. 
Jesus and Christ. Americans, we are driven people, and we love titles. We love success. And as Christians in America, we worship the same thing. So stop pretending. That's why many of us went to college to get the American dream. But that dream become an idol. It can become your God. Your social status and position in America doesn't make you better or superior to those who are lower than you on the social ladder. It does not. How do you use equality, justice, and equity in your social position, in your social relationships? Your social status in America, does it make you less than the people who are further up the social ladder either? You cannot use the social ladder in our country to determine a, to determine a person's worth. You can't. You know the one question I hate when pastors get together? You know one question they ask? What's one question they ask when pastors get together? How many members come into your church? You know why they're doing that? They're judging my worth as a pastor based upon how many of y'all are in the seats. When people ask you what job did you have, what do you do? It's more than just want to know. They're going to they're judging you based on your answer. <laughs> they are attaching worth and value to your job. That's not our worth and value is not in our job. Don't judge people based on where they are on the social ladder. Does God judge you based upon where you are? Because you gotta know on God's social ladder, y'all sit at the bottom. Christ had to come down from the top to pull you up. Come on now. Man, you, you weren't even standing close to the ladder. Like you were way over there <laughs> trying to build your own ladder. Trying to build your own. The Tower of Babel still exists. And many of you still trying to build your own. And are you, do you have any peace yet? Have you found what you're looking for yet? No, you haven't. And you never will apart from Christ. Union with Christ, saints. It changes the way you function when you are in a position of being under leadership. Like I said, you're under leadership throughout your day. You have a boss. You have a supervisor on the job or, or, or a teacher or a coach. When, when you're dressed in the new clothes, you're going to function differently when you're under good leadership. You will strive to have a good worth ethic. You will be faithful on your job. Here's the thing. If you're a Christian and you are always late to work, don't go talking to people about Jesus. Here he comes talking about Jesus, but he always late to work. Come on now. How are you? You do your job under the, for the Lord. Does, you're not where you are just because of your degree. God put you there. So when you go and show up, you show up for him. I used to work for Chick-fil-A, 10 plus years. I can't tell you how many times I woke up at 5 a.m. to get ready to go make biscuits and ask myself, what am I doing with my life? I have a college degree, and I'm going to make chicken biscuits at 5 a.m. I went because that's where God had me. I hated every moment of it, but I went, and when I got there, I worked hard. Because here's the thing, if you ain't faithful in the small, you ain't going to be faithful when you get more. Okay? 
you can't work this job well, we ain't going to work if God gives you a different job. So if you're under authority, if you're in a job you don't like, be grateful because you could be an attorney, unemployed. Then you come in to talk to me. Union with Christ changed the way you function when you were in a position of authority, like a boss, a supervisor, a president of the United States, or if you are a business owner. If you are in a position of authority, you will provide what is just and fair to those under your authority as a Christian. You will, not because you're trying to earn favor with man, but because you realize you have a master who treats you a certain way. So you so if you're in, if you're if you're in a position of authority and you're dressed in the clothing of the new self, then you're going to use your authority in a ways that builds up those under you. You would not use your power and authority to oppress, demean and destroy them. Find that in Scripture. I'm talking to Christians here. There's a lot of Christians in this country in positions of authority, but they don't use it well or wisely. And at the end of the day, the question is, is do you believe it? What do y'all believe? What are you going to believe when you leave here? My prayer and my what I challenge you to do is this week, ask the Holy Spirit to show you the ways in which you're still dressed in the clothes of the old self. Ask him to show you that. Because we still have that old, old sweatsuit that we got from Adam and we pull it out. Do you know the places and where you pull it out? Ask the Spirit and he'll show you. And ask the Spirit to help you to believe that your identity, everything that you are, everything you're going to be is wrapped up in Jesus. Every day, all day, your value, your dignity, your self-worth, your security, and your significance is in Christ alone. And guess what? You don't have to work for it because you are the beloved, not the help. Not a slave, but a beloved son and daughter. When you look in the mirror, who do you see? A nasty, filthy sinner or a beloved son and daughter who struggles with sin? There's a difference. We can't love other people because we don't love ourselves. Remember, beloved, Jesus is able to redeem your social relationships. And all you got to do is ask him. Please pray with and for me.